Hello to everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in into De Facto. This is uh, Ricardo Salas, and I'm in company of Julian Lang. How are you doing, Julian? I'm doing good, Ricardo, and we're also joined by Valentina Caracci. How are Hi, you? Hi, guys. I'm good. And we're here for our final episode of Us in De Facto. Um, we've got the next generation of hosts here with us today. Um, Ricardo, right. do you want to introduce them? Absolutely. Uh, we are in the great company of Amanda Lee, who's uh, joining Heritage. She's a class of 2019 Masters of International Affairs. Uh, she's an, an MIA. She focuses on security and sustainability. And she has uh, some previous experience. She did an internship um, at the Stiftung Wissenschaft und Politik and uh, SPD Faction of the Berlin State Depa uh, Parliament. Excuse me. And we're, we're quite excited to, um, to talk uh, with you about, uh, you know, how, uh, how you guys see this upcoming uh, semester as well. I'm pretty <laughs> sure you'll, you'll uh, be discussing some very, very cool topics. And Yazer, uh, Yazer is a, a good friend of ours as well from, from the first, uh, very first year. He's uh, a class of uh, 2019. He's an MPP student from Bahrain. And, uh, He's well, a nice I'm, guy. He's a, he's a really nice guy, and uh, he, he's asked us not to publish too much information, but you'll get to know him in the, in the upcoming episodes, uh, and for good reasons. So uh, we're, we're very glad that you, that you can be with us, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. And I guess, Amanda, this is ours now. Yes. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> and, and the reason uh, Yasser says that is they're, they're taking over since we are uh, graduating. Aww, so, uh, it's, that's quite it's, sad, isn't it? It's a sad truth, it is, but this is it's still a student podcast, so I'm quite sure that uh, all of you will, uh, will, will have some very, very interesting episodes in the upcoming uh, months. But uh, we'll, we might as well be around Berlin, so uh, you might hear from us very soon as well. Yeah. Um, but without further ado, because we're lazy, it's over to you guys. <laughs> All right, so uh, <laughs> we decided that this last episode would be a great way to just sign off uh, Ricardo, Julian, and uh, Valentina and ask them a little bit about what their thesis um, dissertations were about. So uh, let's start here with uh, Valentina. Do you want to talk a little bit about your thesis and what you just accomplished over the past, uh, I guess, year? Yeah, maybe not one year, <laughs> five months, let's say. It was supposed to be one year, but you know, nobody started that early, come on. Um, actually, I uh, looked at uh, Mafia in Germany for my master thesis. Um, I guess that many people are, are not aware that there's Mafia in Germany, but actually that's the very reason why I, I wrote my thesis about that. Um, yeah, it was just an exploratory study on a special mafia group that is uh, settled here in Germany. And actually, Julian helped me proofreading the thesis, which I'm Didn't very grateful of. Didn't need much proofreading. Are you sure? Okay, <laughs> let's see. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, it was it was quite interesting. I looked at um, uh, judicial investigations to to see what uh, this mafia group is actually doing in in Germany and if it's developing towards uh, like a more political role uh, because so far it only had a, like an economic role let's say so it was involved in uh, money laundry and uh, this kind of economic infiltration uh, so my question was uh, is it developing towards being a, like a quasi-governmental -govern somehow um, entity because that's how mafia looks like in Italy so it's also a political entity uh, and my, res my results were quite mixed, so um, like they're doing both. Uh, so they, but but they, you know, they're developing in some directions. So we have to be scared. That that's the takeaway <laughs> of my thesis. Um, or I mean, um, don't underestimate the mafia bosses. Exactly. Here you go. <laughs> Takeaways: We have to be scared. <laughs> <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> that's very inspiring. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
but you know, sometimes policy making needs fear, you know, to be very um, active and proactive. So, yeah, um, I am quite interested in like the topic of fear within um, like politics and how we use political fear. So very interesting topic. Yeah, yeah, it was actually, um, I don't know if you remember, but it was a, like a, a massacre here in Germany in the city of Duisburg a couple of years ago, 2007, uh, which involved some like um, mafia, uh, mafia people. Uh, and after that, there was like a lot of public debate on, on this issue, uh, but a couple of months ago it was just forgotten. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting how, you know, people still deny uh, that, that mafia is in Germany, even though, uh, you know, there was even a, a very evident uh, event, uh, but that wasn't enough. So my thesis, uh, you know, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> help, help that. Most importantly, her title is amazing. It's wonderful, <laughs> yeah. actually. Oh, Mafias Without Borders. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually uh, have been thinking about, I don't know if you, you stumbled uh, across any of this uh, type of information, but uh, Berlin, for instance, is mostly cash-based. It uh, works as a cash-based society. And I've always been very curious about it, what uh, implications that has for organized crime. Uh, for instance, like uh, I've only been curious whether there's a lot of money laundering in, in Berlin, for instance. Uh, I would. This is an, an uninformed guess, but I, I would assume that there is quite a bit of it. There but is did you, actually. Did you I find looked. It? I looked at it uh, because one of my theses was. Then um, the question was, uh, what makes Germany uh, kind of an attractive destination for mafias? Mm. Uh, and so I looked at this, several uh, factors, and one of them was the, the size of the shadow economy, for example, which is huge. That's like, very interesting. It is. Mm. And uh, there was like this uh, Schattenfinanze Index uh, uh, that actually placed Germany at, uh, I think, seventh uh, um, uh, like rank uh, within the OECD. That's that's quite a surprising uh, fig uh, figure, and also like you're right, the like Germans love cash. They don't really like credit cards, and that's uh, that's also in the like part part of my research. So um, I think it was just a couple of years ago that they uh, put a limit on actually the the, the, the cash that could be uh, used to to purchase certain things because before there was no limit, and now I think it's fifteen thousand euros, which is still quite a lot. I mean, in Italy we have. Uh, 10,000, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and of course this makes uh, uh, the German economy very, very, very attractive and very, very easy for, for crime. Um, it was only recently they also stopped allowing to use the 500 euro notes in Germany because of this transfer that made it. Uh, I actually have a question for you. Mm -hmm. So you say that uh, Germany is the seventh biggest shadow economy in the OECD, but it's also one of the biggest economies. So is seventh really that bad for such a huge economy? It is if you look at the countries that come uh, first. Like um, you have Switzerland, you have Luxembourg, so mm -hmm. you have economies that are not as big as the German economy. Mm -hmm. uh, so of course, uh, I guess that's, this is an absolute number, so it's not like a, a ratio of the actual economy, so your, your point <laughs> is right. But if you look at the countries that come first, they are not the, the biggest economies in Europe. Okay, so when what would you say would be the start dates of was there a transformation after the reunification of Germany for how the mafia operated and how has their role kind of transformed? Because in your thesis, you're saying that they could be going into a more political avenues. Could you explain how the mafias have evolved across borders? Sure. Um, so, of course, I mean, um, mafia in Germany started with uh, the migration waves in the 50s. So Italians coming to Germany, all kind of Italians and among them also uh, mafiosi. That's how you pronounce it, right? Mafiosi, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and yeah, that's an Italian, Italian, Italian word. word but, you know, no. Uh, <laughs> Mafia. It's, it's just an English word, right? Like yeah, but I assume that. Uh, okay, yeah. okay, whatever. Mafiosi, yeah, uh, came came to Germany in the fifties, um, and uh, they started little by little to engage, especially in money laundering, drug trafficking, and now uh, this is their most like the, the biggest activity is it's actually uh, drug trafficking in cocaine, especially. Um, the thing is that um, now there are a lot of Italian restaurants all over. Germany and for mafia that's a very good opportunity to engage also into extortion uh, which is their the kind of political activity because they provide security in exchange uh, for kind of taxations if, if you want to you know think about it that way um, yeah so that's that's what I was that's what I was interested in but it's also interesting that this kind of political role is, is only directed towards the Italian community. It's not directed towards the German community. There was one case in the investigations I looked at when they actually threatened a German citizen. And for me, that was striking it was because it was like, OK, are they even able to, um, you know, to, to give a credible threat towards Germans that know that their state is actually there to help them? Because I think that within the Italian community, the idea is that, OK, uh, will the German state help me, will, will the German state recognize mafia, there is no mafia type association offense in Germany, so it's very hard to catch these people. Uh, but it was striking that they also start to direct threats towards uh, German citizens. Um, so that's, that, that's what I meant with political role. That's a very, mm -hmm. very uh, interesting finding because it's, uh, it, it's even counterintuitive, like you, you wouldn't even think that there's a uh, say money laundering at, at such a big scale or that the, uh, there, there are C certain circles of organized crime that operate uh, you know, under the, the hood, so to say. Right? Yeah, or that they're operating just for a certain community, mm -hmm. even yeah. though if you're in a they're kind of like, if you're an Italian anywhere, then a mafia comes in and you're still getting extorted. Mm -hmm. exactly. That's kind of the feeling that you're getting here. Yeah, so yeah. and that's, that's the case. Mm -hmm. So is that why we should be afraid? Because <laughs> I'm uh, not Italian. That's why I brought that brought Don't the example start of the German ah, citizen okay. yeah, that yeah. was also threatened. And actually, he didn't open his gelateria in the end because he wanted to open a gelateria next to a, a gelateria of a mafioso. And so he said, no, no way, you're not going to go that. You're not going to do that because uh, your daughter, uh, something will happen to your daughter. That was the, the kind of threat. And he didn't open the shop in the end. So there was a successful threat. Um, yeah, so uh, I was like, my, my policy recommendation was uh, let's not wait until the problem gets worse, but let's try to uh, address it now. Exactly. So especially when it comes to the uh, legislative system, because it's not uh, prepared in Germany to uh, tackle this, this issue. Is there recognition in Germany at all, or what's the level of recognition for this issue? It's very high. There was a parliamentary, um, how do you call it, a parliamentary request or something. Um, uh, somebody asked a, a parliament member uh, if they were aware of like how many um, mafiosi were in Berlin, mm -hmm. and they said we we don't have a clue, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's quite obvious that it is if you look at Italian investigations, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, yeah, there is a very low recognition, I would say, of the, of the, of the issue so far. Um, okay, that is perhaps a final question for me, if Amanda doesn't have something to add on, is where is, perhaps, is there areas in Germany or cities or locations where mafia is more highly concentrated on? Yes, uh, there are the richest regions, of course, mm -hmm. uh, which makes sense. So especially um, Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg, uh, Nordrhein-Westfalia, 
um, but it's also present in the east. Uh, so Turinja uh, <laughs> is Hessen in the east or is it in the in the west? I'm not sure. I think it's in between. <laughs> it's present in Hessen. <laughs> in Hessen as well. Um, yeah. So it's most mostly present in the richest regions. Yeah. Great. Um, thank you so much, Valentina. Thank uh, you, guys. And so we'll move on to Julian. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your thesis? Sure. Uh, so my thesis does not have such a fancy, uh, short, punchy title. <laughs> um, it's a long one, so I won't say it. Uh, I looked into um, EU comprehensive crisis management, which means essentially EU peacekeeping, um, and how the EU can improve um, what is called the comprehensive approach to crisis management which means that they want to bring all different types of policy, whether it's civil elements or military elements or humanitarian elements, together into essentially a coordinated effort. Um, and I did that by uh, through qualitative research, focusing on statements given by experts, um, both anonymously and in public forum, um, and uh, through previous research, just compiling that and trying to narrow down recommendations specifically for the EU for challenges that the UN and NATO and the EU all face. Um, and uh, my, the short version of my title is uh, Culture, Competition, and Commitment, because those are the three main challenges that uh, all of these efforts face. Culture, uh, there are cultural divides between both civilian and military actors, between civilian actors even, versus uh, like diplomats versus humanitarian organizations that want to retain their neutrality and don't want a political objective. Um, and then there's also inter-organizational and between, of course, international actors and local actors. Then competition, these organizations all compete against each other even when they're working on the same goal. For the EU, it's a particularly big problem because the EU, um, when an EU, when the EU's working, for example, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, they will have a military mission there, they will have the delegation, which is essentially the embassy there, and then they'll also have a special representative. None of those report to each other. They all just report back up uh, to the external action service in uh, Brussels and uh, are coordinated there all the way at the top, not even by a body within it, just all the way at the high representative slash vice president of the European Commission. Um, then the final problem so is... So there's not only just like within an international organization, there's this competition, but also the competition between like the UN and oh, the Oh, of EU course. And... That, that as well. Uh, NATO and the EU um, and the UN all uh, competed against each other pretty frequently. And even the member states within one organization working together will compete. Um, in Kosovo, the Italian uh, uh, police forces that were deployed there um, essentially refused to coordinate with the... Uh, police force in Kosovo set up by the UN. Um, Why that? They didn't feel like they needed to report to them or, or work with them at all when dealing with organized crime because they knew better. <laughs> like the turf, turf, uh -huh, turf wars. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and Sorry, then the final okay. problem is, of course, that because all of these crisis countries and, and crisis situations we have nowadays are really complex and take forever to be solved, is commitment. You need a lot of resources over a long period of time. Uh, the EU, in particular, has a problem with this. Um, since 2008, it has no longer deployed uh, large peacekeeping forces anymore, even though it has improved its capacity to. So since, I think, 2009, we have the ability to deploy EU battle groups, but we've just never done it, um, even though we have plenty of countries that it probably could have been useful for, especially, for example, Libya. Um, 
And so, yeah, and then my, uh, I then go through policy recommendations, uh, which focus a lot on things like training uh, between organizations, getting them to work together, um, and uh, general political recommendations for how to um, improve commitment. And also taking uh, example, uh, like taking the lead that other organizations have taken and how they structure it. For example, the UN is a lot more coordinated on the ground and even integrates humanitarians to some extent. They leave um, a level of variation for humanitarians if if it's possible for them to ha have independence, give them as much independence as possible, but in more serious situations, they can also be integrated into the structure more. So in your opinion, what is the future trajectory of the EU's uh, peacekeeping missions? Um, if you just look at structure and, and the reforms they've been doing, uh, a lot of projects in the new PESCO, the big security package, look like they're going to improve these capacities, but considering the big problem is that we're, we have capacities that we're just not using, it, it really comes down to political will. Uh, possibly the only good thing to come out of Brexit, I think, is that this might actually mean that the EU is more willing to work uh, towards this stuff because Britain was one of the big uh, members who was reluctant about that and preferred using NATO. Okay. Very interesting. So there's a lot of information there. Yes, that, that was just yeah, uh, what I was to say. This has some, some very, very interesting implications, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, Perhaps let's... The thesis is really broken down into two parts. Uh, so we should one, mention Yasser, Yasser proofread my thesis. Uh, <laughs> so there is the... You're cheating. <laughs> a little bit. There is understanding the structure of the yes. EU, how they respond to a crisis, and then you're basically assessing, for lack of a better term, the problems in it. Then my question to you is to perhaps allow me to imagine this a bit better. Say I'm a dictator, Sure. I'm Yasser, and I invade like Amanda Land, and Amanda <laughs> Land now has a humanitarian crisis which the EU has to respond to. Yes. What structures does the EU go to to assess how they want to respond to this? To assess how they want to respond to this. And, um, and how they're going to do it. Um, so, as I mentioned, the EU has a bunch of different bodies that actually work on the ground. These are generally split between uh, ECHO, which is the humanitarian office of the EU, which deploys essentially a lot, uh, either funds NGOs that are already on the ground, or deploys things like the uh, European Medical Corps, which then provides just medical relief. All of those uh, bodies under ECHO uh, have an obligation to be as neutral as possible and to be deployed without political objectives. They also get funding that's completely independent from every other crisis management tool in there. Uh, the European External Action Service, which is essentially a combination of a foreign ministry and a defense ministry for the EU, um, then deploys civilian missions and military missions and whatever delegations are already there as an embassy. Um, none of these on-the-ground bodies are take part in the planning process. Instead, each of the bodies they report to, which are also separate, uh, uh, co come together in an ad hoc crisis management platform, which is chaired by the chair of the EEAS, um, as well as a bunch of sub-coordinated committees, which I won't go into because otherwise we... What is the EAS? Sorry, External Action Service, the, okay. the Foreign Defense Ministry. Um, uh, so the chair of the EEAS, a bunch of uh, internal bodies within the AAS, including military bodies and civilian bodies, uh, the chair of ECHO, the chair of the development aid, um, and a few other bodies, as well as uh, occasionally some advising members, all come together in an ad hoc thing for saying, oh, how do we want to address the crisis in Amanda Land? Okay. Um, 
and then they give a recommendation to the European Commission, which then decides. And would you say this, so ECHO is kind of something independent, that despite, despite no matter, say, the level of severity, the decision of the Foreign Defense Ministry and of this ad hoc committee, that the humanitarians will go into Amanda land and provide service? Uh, theoretically, yes. Uh, the... ECHO and all humanitarian organizations are based on uh, need. So if they say, oh, a whole, like more people are starving in the Mandalorian than elsewhere, we need to deploy more aid there, then they'll do that, um, regardless of whether the EU decides they're going to deploy peacekeepers. Right. And, and the three issues you mentioned, which are culture, competition, and commitment, yes. would you say they are exclusive to the ad hoc committee? No, no, they're, they're prevalent essentially on the ground at the political level everywhere. Just, yeah, everywhere and their implications yeah. there. Are the, is the ad hoc committee appointed democratically? Uh, I mean, uh, I'm not really sure what you mean by that. It's a committee formed up of bureaucrats. <laughs> um, technically, the bureaucrats all are appointed by the commission, which is in turn appointed by, uh, uh, by European states, which are democratic. So I... Uh, yes, I mean. So which which commission, which which branch of the EU appoints the? Uh, so the European Commission European appoints that. Okay, so I know from your from reading your thesis that this was done in partnership with BW Consultings. Yes. Perhaps could you talk a little bit more about how that came about to happen and perhaps why BW Consulting chose you? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure why they chose me, but. <laughs> um, uh, I should probably mention who BW Consulting is. BW Consulting is the in-house consulting company of the German Armed Forces. Um, so essentially what they did is, um, I think they're working with a few other Hertie students as well on their theses, but uh, I'm not sure what they wrote on. Shout out to them. Yes, shout out to them. Um, uh, and uh, uh, essentially what the company does is they, they promote reforms and things like that, that uh, based off of their own assessments of situations. Um, and they were particularly interested in projects relating with PESCO. I had my own background doing some uh, studying peacekeeping and crisis management stuff. So I found a way to combine those. Um, and uh, essentially what they've done for me is that they've helped me uh, get contacts with people I could get in touch with for interviews and even help me arrange a few interviews. Um, I can't really go into who those people were because that's all <laughs> anonymous, but uh, <laughs> they were very useful. I'll say, I'll say that. Uh, great. Were there any surprises from your research? Uh, Can I point a surprise? Sure, sure, yeah. Just how incredibly complex responding <laughs> to any of this is. I think you had around two pages of acronyms? I had three pages of acronyms three pages. when you read it. No it's way. now yeah. two pages of acronyms. Which I just <laughs> highlighted and the words were WTF as my comments. It's incredible. I now call Julian Lang JL because I cannot think of anything but an acronyms. Yes. So that's, that was my shock. Um, you have something more academic. Uh, for me, the content shock was probably that the fact that the EU hasn't deployed uh, a large mission since 2008, essentially. Um, and a lot of that were related to um, or is justified by the financial crisis, but most people would argue we've moved past the point of crisis, so yeah. we, we should be able to make use of these things, and there's plenty of use for them, as I said. Great, thank you so much. Um, so now we'll move on to Ricardo. Please tell us about your thesis. Thank you very much. Well, uh, first of all, I have to say that my thesis is a, is a very 
is a rather unusual topic for a, for a policy school, but uh, I have a background in, in communication studies and I have always been quite fascinated by, by the media and the effect of, uh, of the media and have a, a, a particular liking um, for a particular um, attraction towards music. So uh, I, I decided to research on, on the effect of popular music on people's political uh, views and on people's political engagement. Uh, I come from Mexico, so I decided to look um, at the case of Mexico and also the case of, of Germany. Um, there's an obvious association when uh, people speak about political music, and that's always the, the late 60s, either the Summer of Love in 67 or 1968. Um, but there's quite a bit of, of, of research uh, on that, and uh, I also think there's a great sense of nostalgia. A lot of uh, people, your <laughs> typical uncle who always says that music was uh, better back in the day and so on. Uh, Not only was, music, everything <laughs> was back in the days, right? <laughs> everything was better back in the day and so on. Uh, but they had leaded paint and leaded gasoline, so don't, yeah, don't get... Yeah, like, people shouldn't get uh, uh, that easily um, <laughs> convinced. Um, anyhow, so I, I thought it was um, it was interesting to look into it because if you if you think about it, you don't have to be particularly musical to, to be affected by music or to be influenced by it. Uh, music is quite ubiquitous uh, and it's uh, probably one of the most democratic means of, of human expression. Um, compared to um, other means of entertainment, say uh, sports, it, it doesn't require too much infrastructure to, to produce music. You can even clap uh, in unison, you know, clap in, in a social group or you can sing to yourself. So there's no doubt that, that music has uh, played a fundamental role uh, to, uh, during um, human history as, as we know it. And um, as a matter of fact, um, music is, is more present now than, than ever with stream, streaming platforms. Uh, YouTube is surprisingly one of, the, um, one of the largest music databases and I think even surprising for, for YouTube, a lot of people use YouTube just uh, for music streaming. So that was, is, a, is a big problem for the, for the music industry because it doesn't necessarily produce revenue, uh, whereas uh, Spotify or platforms like Apple Music do pay royalties. So um, I said, okay, how, uh, how does this affect people's political views? Does it increase or, or decrease voter turn, turnout? If you listen to music with political mo motivations, does that uh, encourage you to adopt a political, um, a political stance? And uh, I have to say that it was quite a challenge because I, I didn't think it would be as a, um, as a, as a general study because first of all, there, there's there are some, some previous uh, studies on this and some previous research as to how political music, uh, as to what role political music had in society, but, but there's no real understanding as to, first of all, whether it actually changes people's attitudes or, or whether music can make people uh, react to a political situation or if it works as a, some sort of catalyst for uh, political engagement. And second of all, well, if it does, to what extent and, and why? Um, so a big part of, of the research was to make sense of all the studies that have been been done because you can uh, you can look at music from a, a sociological perspective uh, or from a physiological perspective okay what are uh, the mechanisms that happen uh, when the human brain uh, is um, so there's a lot of uh, interdisciplinary it was uh, research quite quite interdisciplinary but heavily from the psychological uh, no or? it was uh, mostly sociological uh, so I combined a lot of uh, media studies with communication studies with uh, with sociology um, and that proved to be very interesting. The, the, the two study cases, and this had never been done before, so that was very exciting to me, uh, for me to discover. Um, there are some researchers in, in England who have uh, developed a framework that seems to 
explain to a to a good degree why what role political music has for instance in in events like live aid or um, uh, a very famous um, benefit festival from the 70s the rock against racism why those events were able to you know to convince so many people to donate money or were able to uh, mobilize so many people and they said okay how can we understand this uh, all, all, all of this power that music has to galvanize people so they developed a framework that sort of uh, explains it and um, I decided to apply that framework to two study cases, which was the, the case of Mexico and Germany. And I chose a more recent period than the 60s. I said, okay, what period was particularly political and what period produced uh, politically motivated music? And um, I chose 12 years from 1988 to, uh, until the year 2000, because both in Mexico and Germany, there uh, were a lot of very, very... Um, a very serious political changes that were happening. Of course, in Germany, you had um, the the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the German reunification. Of course, uh, the downfall of the Soviet Union. But in Mexico, you also had uh, the democratic transition in the 2000s. But obviously, a series of crises pre uh, prior to that that had been adding up uh, an indigenous uprising, the Zapatista movement, and as well uh, the the tequila crisis of 1994, which was a very um, a very serious financial crisis so that obviously produced some some politically motivated music and what i discovered is that um music actually does have a, a very powerful um role as a as a catalyst music shapes uh people's political ideas and it also uh incentivizes people to to open up to new political ideas uh, so there's many many aspects of uh, of this that you can look into for instance music plays uh, a very a very fundamental role, I would say, in, in, in young people's um, education, educational development, because it can, uh, if you listen to, to a wide array of music, you also become more politically tolerant or you're more likely to be more tolerant to political ideas. Uh, but that also comes as a double-edged sword, because if you say, okay, if music does have a, that power to, uh, to enhance your, your education, well, it could also be used for bad purposes. So with that in mind is heavy metal bad or is hip-hop bad or is uh, so it, it, it you can argue argue either way in my opinion absolutely so i i'm sorry if i'm talking too much but the the very bo <laughs> bottom line or the main finding of this is that uh, nowadays especially with uh, streaming services and with uh music being more present than ever uh, musicians and also popular artists are uh, adopting a much more political role than before. Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely see this from coming out of like the U.S. as a like popular music hegemon. Like, what what do we do with the crazy things that Kanye says? Or, absolutely. You know, and people, everyone has a political opinion these days, and sometimes I just want to like sit down and listen to music and just enjoy it. But yes, and, and the question is so just want because Barbie girl, <laughs> so Barbie girl fighting against the political hegemony. Uh, just yeah, go but, party. So uh, back to your topic, like, did you find are most of the popular music more liberal in stance, or are are you finding also popular music that's like? Uh, the other side of the spectrum, more like on the conservative or... Uh... I found two, uh, both both cases actually. One of, um, most of the popular music is, is directed towards people who tend to be more liberal or uh, the general consumer of, of popular music tends to to, to be more more open, at least the, the people who listen to more uh, genre, music genres. 
uh, more conservative people tend only to listen to very particular uh, music genres and there's actually studies that uh, uh, that say that your um, musical tastes are, are also very in line with your uh, political views and the more educated you, you become the more open you you become to music as well but you also tend to to be more uh, elitist or more exclu exclusive towards uh, music that is associated with uh, groups of lower uh, income or lower education, for instance, hip-hop, rap, or, or even heavy metal. So that's uh, an interesting finding. Uh, none of this is, of course, uh, definitive. Uh, mm -hmm. The research is, is ongoing, but it does mean that uh, music has an impact in people's political opinions. And I did a series of, of interviews both in Mexico and, and Germany, and it seemed like music was uh, very, very important. It was fundamental in a, uh, from a cultural but also a socio-political uh, kind of way during the reunification because in, in the early 90s there were a lot of cases of extreme uh, of extremism, of uh, white, white power movements and a lot of racist attacks uh, in, in the eastern part of Germany in particular. So music, there were a lot of uh, more center or even left-wing uh, groups who responded to that towards music and I analyzed a very funny song uh, from from a band called Dietzta, the Doctors, yeah. uh, which is called uh, Schrei nach Liebe, uh, uh, scream, uh, scar, scream for Freedom, excuse, yeah. excuse me. And uh, it's an anti-xenophobic uh, anti, um, uh, kind of anthem. And even now, almost 25 uh, years after its release, people still uh, sing it during anti-extremism uh, rallies. So... I mean, that makes you wonder whether, whether if, if music means uh, something in people's lives, uh, it must have a, a, an impact in their political views, and it, it, it also helps to mobilize them to, to a certain extent. So what it all comes down is credible uh, musicians who uh, can have a very, very uh, powerful political uh, influence. And the question is, okay, um, say Bono or Kanye West or... or um, Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, Kendrick Lamar. System of a Down, you were bashing on metal earlier, yeah, so yeah. you need to just I mean, plug my... my <laughs> I, 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 am a, I, I have to say that I'm a, I'm a huge uh, rock and heavy metal fan as, as well, among, <laughs> amongst many, many other uh, music genres. But the, the real question is, in these days, when any sort of celebrity can become political... Uh, Okay, how can they be held accountable? Hate that for, trend, for, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and whether they should be held accountable, but if they have such a, an influential um, political power, uh, how can they be voted out if they um, do a bad use of, uh, of this power? Should they even be voted out, or should we even be discussing these questions? Is are it you, part of democracy? I think it depends on the consumer. You know, what, the, yeah. what does the consumer want? Mm -hmm. Are you advocating limitations on free speech? <laughs> no, I don't think it all. I don't think it comes to that. But uh, what, what I was aiming at this is uh, to make, um, I guess, just to rationalize uh, up to what extent this this can affect uh, people's opinions, because. Um, there's a very fine line between uh, hate speech and freedom of speech. For instance, a lot of heavy metal or a lot of rap has uh, has pretty aggressive lyrics, and you can you can argue that that it also works as a, some sort of tension release for the youth, uh, even for people who are older. If you listen to to aggressive music, that also ne neutralizes your own feelings in a way, and it makes you feel better. But then again, Spotify, for instance, just earlier on this year, uh, removed a lot of uh, wide power music. So drawing that line is also not an easy task. How do you uh, define to what extent uh, music is promoting extremism or uh, anti-Semitism or uh, what have you? Sexism. Sexism as well. Yeah. Um, 
and to draw that line is a very hard thing. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm not who's to judge. Uh, I think just like Amanda said, maybe the general consumer, but uh, people are also responsible to what they listen to. Um, but it it is. It, it, it does have implications for cultural policy and education policy. Um, for instance, like promoting um, music or, or reinforcing music as part of the uh, school curriculum is uh, quite important because it, it has been proven that it can shape uh, people's, um, people's le uh, uh, levels of um, information or whether people read more or less or, or tend to be more or less informed uh, citizens. So I, I do uh, suggest that that, uh, uh, that music and arts compared to sports, I mean, it's ideal if, they, if kids or children do both, uh, but if kids are exposed to art, it is very likely that they'll be well-informed or more informed citizens than, uh, than the average if they're not exposed to, to art um, during their uh, education. Uh, but no, I'm not, I'm not making a claim against uh, free speech. I'm, I'm all, all, all for uh, free speech, but I thought it was an interesting discussion and saying, okay, should we even draw the line? Is, is there a, you know, should we uh, discuss these things or not? Yeah, very interesting for like a public policymaker to think about. I mean, obviously you need to protect your democratic rights with a freedom of, or protection of freedom of speech, but also you don't want the spread of radical ideas to get so big that eventually your political party doesn't win office or something like that. So yeah, definitely striking a balance. So um, were there any surprises though when you came up with your research? Um, yes, I, I, I think there were quite a few. Um, the, the theory I was, I was basing my research essentially just in, in, in a natural sense that uh, for music to be politically influential, it has to be, uh, first of all, uh, there has to be some, some sort of an infrastructure for that. There has to be a, a music market or, or a demand uh, for, for music. Second, it has to be seen as, as credible or legitimate. Uh, that's why um, when Miley Cyrus does a, a political comment, it might not have the very same uh, effect as, as when Bono do, uh, does uh, something politically or, or when Kanye does a political statement. Uh, so the, the artist has to be seen as a credible uh, source. And, and uh, lastly, there's a, a political component in music by itself. It's not just the, uh, uh, just the lyrics. Uh, music by itself can be very political. That was uh, why um, uh, Dmitry Shostakovich, the, the Russian composer, was uh, so was, was rejected by, by uh, Stalin um, during the 40s uh, because he, his music was seen as, as politically dangerous back then. In the time, and there were absolutely no lyrics in, in his symphonies. So, um, on, under that view, um, I was surprised to see that there is actually like a, a way of analyzing uh, these things, and that people do care about this. That people are willing to pay um, good money for, for seeing a concert. That people's political opinions are in, indeed uh, transformed through music. For instance, in, behind the Iron Curtain, Western music was worth uh, quite a lot because it it, it worked as a almost unilateral means of communication, but people knew what, what young people were listening to on the other side precisely because of, uh, of music, uh, because it was easier to carry than, than video or any other means of uh, communication. And I was quite surprised to see that it did have such a, a, a big impact. Uh, a music group from, from Mexico was criticizing uh, corruption quite heavily in the 90s, 
has a very big following in Russia, and I was very surprised to see that uh, because they were talking about the exact same problems about uh, political corruption, uh, insecurity, you know, police brutality, and so on. And um, I was quite surprised to see that these things seem um, not very serious, but they they do mean uh, they do mean something for the uh, you know common for the common guy or common girl. So, I have, I guess, what I'm wondering here is if we're looking, music is part of a wider cultural reflection on the on the issues of the time that are there so what i'm c coming say from an economics background if we're looking at the great depression mm -hmm. the obvious uh, art implications of the great depression which whether they're books or their music in a way they reflect the the impressions of the society at the time so what you have in your thesis you write popular music as a catalyst for political engagement and what I want to ask with that intro is a bit perhaps the chicken and the egg question. Mm -hmm. To what extent is it a catalyst for change that someone makes an amazing rock music and suddenly, oh my God, we're all going to go donate money mm -hmm. to, to support developing countries? And to what extent is it though instead a reflection of the sociological patterns and development of a society? And the music just reflects that. So is this something that came up or perhaps a struggle at all that is obvious, perhaps in the economic perspective, no money, people are sad, sad music, versus perhaps a political shift? That is a very good question. It is something that uh, I kept asking myself along the way during the whole uh, process. I think music tends to be more a reflection of what is happening at a socio-political level, uh, but it can also produce change, and especially um, in, in times of heavy socio-political unrest or, or in times of, uh, of censorship or, or heavy restrictions. Uh, that's when music can be uh, seen more more as a political flag. And, and, and precisely because it's just easier to, to transport or easier to communicate than any other uh, uh, means. And uh, you, can, you can even have a tune in your head or spread it or, uh, around without having to write, uh, write it down. So it's, it, it's just easy. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. I tend to think that, that um, Music has always been more political than, than politics has uh, been musical. This is also what, what uh, and uh, that, that's what that's Moby, Ricardo, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, no, that's, uh, that, that quote is, um, is actually from Moby. He says something from quite, Moby. quite similar. I Moby love said, Moby. Um, when, when he was asked about uh, music's influence on, on politics. Um, so at the end of the day, I do think that, that music is more a reflection of what people are feeling. Um, so you can even look at it as a, as a thermometer of social conflict or of uh, people's dissatisfaction, which would be very interesting. Which is very high right now. Yes. I think, this is only a guess, but this would be for other people to decide. And cut me if I'm talking too much, please. But uh, now with, with uh, streaming services, I think you could even uh, do a data-driven study of, of, uh, of whether young people particularly are, are, are dissatisfied with a... With politics, or or you can you can even use it as a, some sort of thermometer, depending on what they're listening to or or the political content in the in the music. Good idea. Maybe uh, I'll follow up on my. <laughs> Spotify had an ad after Trump got elected. Is like thinking of all the five thousand people who streamed End of the World, and I know it. <laughs> well, yeah. th th there you go. But uh, we um, all have a heartbreak playlist. Yes, it, so. just as a last, uh, as a last caveat, well, as last, uh, last word, um, there are um, combinations of music that 
work and are extremely catchy because that's that's just how our brain works. That's why Despacito is just like so um, strikingly uh, effective. Amazing. What what's uh, what, what can be uh, what's kind of scary about this is that uh, political parties are, are already implementing this for political communication, doing catchy jingles and uh, um, catchy reggaeton songs that don't come from the political party uh, and are seen as legitimate because it just seems like any, like the Obama girl uh, video, because it seems like any regular um, person did it and that a particular tune doesn't come from a political party. So people start to adopt it. And so I think that's important for uh, political communication. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Um, just for a last round of last round with all of you guys, uh, tell us about your future plans. Uh, I'll start with you, Valentina. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you were not going to ask me question. Oh, your, um, your parents were all listening? <laughs> Immediate family members, extended family members. <laughs> Open your ears. Um, let's say that I'm waiting for answers from uh, institutions and... Um, so my future is going to depend on, on those answers. All right, well, best of luck. Thank you. <laughs> and Julian? A very similar answer. Still uh, waiting to hear back from people. Hopefully we'll stay in Berlin, but we'll see. Otherwise, who knows? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> best of luck. Um, I think uh, I want to go back to the media um, because that's just something I'm very passionate about. I really enjoy uh, doing interviews and that is related to what I was doing before. Um, and what you were doing here. And what we're doing exactly <laughs> right now. Uh, but it, it really depends. Mexico is holding uh, presidential elections this summer, so uh, I will, I'll um, keep an, uh, an eye out for that. And uh, I might end up staying a, a bit longer in Germany. I don't quite know just yet, but uh, let's say it's up in the air. All right. Well, thank you so much. And... Uh any last words? No, thank you all for listening. And you guys are welcome here next year to ask us the same question on our futures. <laughs> I Perhaps. think the, the way it works is you need to get your own replacements. <laughs> really? <laughs> Maybe I'll make a song and it'll change your opinion on yeah. what you should do for me. There you Anyways, go. Yeah. But thank you so much also yeah. uh, to you, Amanda and Yasser, for uh, taking over this, uh, this podcast. And we're sure that you're, you'll do a fantastic job. Yeah, thank yeah. you for giving it to us. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you all next semester with the next season of The Factor. Thank you all. <laughs> <laughs>